I want to take you back first to 1851, when it's April the 16th, and the Paris Opera is packed for the premiere of a brand new opera by Charles Gounod, a largely unknown composer. But the libretto is by a very popular young dramatist called Émile Augier, and the theme is the famous ancient Greek woman poet Sappho. This is the first work on an ancient Greek theme at the opera for two decades. And most importantly, the title role is being taken by none other than Pauline Viardot-Garcia, at 29, the most famous mezzo-soprano in the world. Gounod is fast falling in love with his leading lady, and he's very lucky that such a superstar, after hearing his piano compositions, had actually asked him to compose an opera especially for her. And he did not disappoint. He found writing hard since his brother died while he was actually composing it. But then he realised that the painful emotions could actually help him write. Both he and Pauline wept at the beauty of her arias when they first heard them in the rehearsal. And his old friend Hector Berlioz wept when he heard them in performance. The three-act opera was a critical success receiving standing ovations every night, and it made Gounod's reputation and secured his future career. The plot is very simple. Sappho chooses selfless loss over self-centred love, leading to her climactic suicide. The setting of the first act is the Olympic Games, which features a poetry competition as well as athletics. Sappho wins the poetry competition, beating her compatriots from the island of Lesbos, the historically attested poet Alceus. But she's in love with another man from Lesbos called Phaon, but Phaon is torn between her and a courtesan named Glycera. In Act Two, we're at home in Lesbos, but it's being oppressed by an evil tyrant. The brave resistance is being led by Phaon, but Lycera is prepared to betray the conspiracy to the authorities. And she lies to Sappho, saying she will not betray the plot, but only on condition that Phaon leaves Lesbos without Sappho. Phaon arranges to leave. To save his life, Sappho refuses to go with him. Angry at being rejected and not knowing why, he chooses Glycera instead. So in Act 3, we're on a windswept beach with a rocky cliff overhanging it at sunset. Phaon, with the other foiled conspirators and a triumphant Glycera, says goodbye to his homeland. Sappho sadly comes to say farewell. Phaon curses her. She forgives him, sings an unforgettable aria over continuous harps, rolling in great waves over the deep, subdued notes of the double basses with intermittent cymbals and horns, and then leaps into the sea and her death.
every self-respecting mezzo-soprano offers this aria in her concert repertoire. On YouTube, you can find, amongst many others, Grace Bunbury, Montserrat Caballé, and Marilyn Horne. But what, if anything, can Gounod's opera tell us about the great poet of Lesbos herself? The answer is, not much. Piecing together the facts about <coughs> Sappho's life is very challenging, because only a few fragments of her large oeuvre survive and because the ancient Greeks and Romans invented numerous fictions about their most celebrated she-poet. Her association with erotic love and her attraction to her own sex kept the ancient rumour industry in business. There are plenty of bits of Sappho's biography surviving from classical antiquity, and they were used, some of them, by Ogier for the libretto, but almost all of them are fabricated. Now, both Sappho and Alceus were wealthy residents of Lesbos, now Lesbos, a powerful northeast Aegean island where the strongest city-state was and is Mytilene. The old ruling family, the Penthalids, were on the wane, and there was constant infighting between rival factions. During these poets' lifetimes, at least three tyrants ruled in succession, including the most famous of them all, Pittacus, under whom Alceus was forced into exile. Now, it's possible that Alceus and Sappho did know each other, although Sappho's dates may be a little bit later, and as a woman, she could not compete in those musical competitions at the major games. But she did have at least two brothers, definitely. She married at some point a man and had a daughter called Cleis, whom she named after her own mother. Sappho was alive during Pittacus' supremacy, and there was an ancient tradition that she too spent time in exile, perhaps in Sicily. But otherwise, the political subplot of Gounod's opera has no basis in history. It was thought up by the librettist, Émile Augier, to fit contemporary circumstances. Fewer than eight months after the opera's debut, on December the 2nd, 1851, President Louis Napoleon was to stage his coup overturn the elected National Assembly of the Second Republic. And in the, these months leading up to the coup, his bureaucrats were assiduously trying to quell popular democratic feeling. And they harshly censored Ogier's libretto with its exhortations, rousing exhortations to stand up against tyrants because it smacked far too much of the heady rhetoric of 1848. Even less grounded in historical fact, is the idea that Sappho committed suicide out of disappointed love for a man called Phaon. Now, this is one of the many episodes invented by ancient Greeks, beginning at least a century after her death, probably in the raucous comedies of classical Athens. These news stories reacted to Sappho's passionate verses by portraying her not only as heterosexual, but as a sluttish prostitute, or even an nymphomaniac. The Phaon story is fiction. Phaon was actually a mythical ferryman who once transported Aphrodite, the goddess of love, from Lesbos to Asia Minor, when she was just disguised as an old woman. He was himself very elderly, but as a reward, she gave him a lotion which restored his youth magically. And some ancient wit dreamed up adding this rejuvenated Phaon 
to the story of the real-life poet Sappho and the tale of her tragic suicide became firmly entrenched in the tradition, especially after the peerless Roman poet Ovid included a fictional letter in his Letters from Heroines written by a desperate Sappho to Phaon. So what was life really like for cultured people on Lesbos in the late 7th and early 6th centuries BCE, a period often known to ancient historians as the Age of Tyrants? The island had enjoyed a very advanced level of civilization for many centuries and was actually famous for its women. It had beauty contests for women and lesbian concubines are prized by warriors in the Homeric epics. Moreover, since the decipherment of Hittite, Sappho's poetry has promised to leave us even further back into the mysteries of Bronze Age Anatolia. Lesbos was known to the Hittites as Laspas, and it was sophisticated enough to provide the Hittite king with a cult image as early as the 14th century BC. Even the name Sappho seems to derive from the Hittite word, meaning numinous, or from a Hittite name for a sacred mountain. The lesbian families jostling for power were mostly nouveau riche, parvenu, popular leaders who traded with Lydia and had recently replaced hereditary kings. The very name Turanos, Tyrannos, tyrant, always carried some negative connotations, but actually its basic meaning was simply a ruler who had seized power, usually with popular support, rather than inherited it. When economic turmoil forced the masses to seize an articulate leader to champion their cause and remove the kings, rival aristocrats and newly rich tradesmen exploited the instability of the political situation. And the picture was further complicated by the economic shifts leading to the introduction of coinage for the first ever time. It was invented in Lydia. And a new class of successful traders like Sappho's family, who were in the shipping business, like most good Greeks, challenged the old landowning aristocracy and the fact then the tyrants were the result of this power struggle. The rising commercial class needed a single ruler with whom they could bulldoze um, all their interests into supporting their interests against kings or oligarchic groups of hereditary landowners. But the tyrants weren't just representatives of newly empowered citizen mercantile groups. They were flamboyant, ostentatious, egotistical, and materialistic. They competed with each other in displays of amazing wealth, and their subjects followed suit. Tyranny was one of the many practices the Greeks of this era, the era of colonization, picked up from non-Greek peoples, the people they called the barbarians. Most Greek tyrants seem to have been consciously following on an example set by the enterprising ruler of their closest eastern neighbours, the near-legendary Gyges of Lydia. In about 685 BCE, this unknown individual usurped the hereditary monarch, Count Aulis, conquered much of Asia Minor, and acquired proverbial wealth as well as international renown. And at that point, the very term Turanos, tyrant, came from the language spoken either by the Lydians or one of the other Anatolian peoples. So a much more inviting label for this period is the Lyric Age of Greece, for it's in these centuries that all the foundational poets of Western personal and occasional poetry produced their songs, not just Sappho. 
Archilochus, Alcaeus, Anacreon, Alcman, Stesichorus. They were all islanders, and they composed songs to be the song to the accompaniment of lyres which are rather smaller than the epic Kythera, the great big one used by the Homeric bards. Sometimes the accompaniment had pipes. Shorter than the epics of Homer, far shorter, and in a variety of rhythms suited to dance, song or both, the sheer variety of these lyric poems of these two centuries and their sophistication are quite astounding. Almost, although most of their authors used writing to perfect the pieces, their songs retain strong marks of their genesis in an oral culture. And although all the poets shared a poetic vocabulary, they composed in the different dialects of Greek according to their own heritage and island, and sometimes the type of poem they were creating. Several, several Greeks later found Sappho's Eastern Greek, Aeolic dialect, which has very pronounced uh sounds and numerous oriental borrowings from the Lydian language. They found it rather barbarous to listen to. The poems of the 7th and 6th centuries are the preeminent texts in the whole of ancient Greek literature for the assertion of sheer joie de vivre, for celebrating love, pleasure, laughter, and luxury. Many explore the physical and emotional effects of wine and sexual desire. Some are more elevated in tone, reflecting on how transitory life is. Others are far more earthy. There are wedding songs, songs for maidens before their marriage. There are dirges to perform at funerals. There are hymns to be sung in the temples of the gods. But Sappho is today by far the most famous of all these lyric poets, and her poems reflect the island's proximity to the rich barbarian culture of Lydia, which is only about 10 nautical miles away. Um, it's actually the tragic place now where so many people have drowned, coming, trying to find asylum in Lesbos. Her child, Cleus, she tells us, she loves so much that she'd never exchange over the whole of the Lydian kingdom. The fragmentary poems in Sappho's name include some of such emotional directness and sensory appeal that they take the breath away. When she's forced to part from a lover, she's cast into despair. Honestly, I wish I were dead. When she developed a passion, she says, love shook my heart like winds falling on the oaks on a mountain. She remembers an ardent encounter. You came. I was longing for you. You cooled my heart, which was burning with desire. And her thoughts are full of erotic memories. Beside me, you don crowns of roses and garlands of flowers around your soft neck. You anointed yourself with costly royal fragrance. You satisfied our desire on soft couches. In fragment 58, a poem was only put back together in 2004 from two separate bits of papyrus. She plays with the gender of lover and beloved by never revealing whether the speaker is male or female, the speaker. She remembers the beauty of the young mythical hero, Tithonus, carried to the ends of the world by the lovelorn goddess of the dawn. And this is the poem in English. For you... Let the fragrant, blossomed, muses, lovely gifts be zealous girls and the clear, melodious lyre. My once tender body 
Old age now has seized. My hair's turned white instead of dark. My heart's grown heavy. My knees won't support me. My knees that once upon a time were fleet for the dance of fawns. This state I bemoan, but what to do? Not to grow old? Being human, there's no way. Tithonus once, the tale was, rosy-armed dawn, love-smitten, carried him off to the world's end, handsome and young then. Yet in time, grey age overtook him, husband of an immortal wife. Two and a half thousand years before Jeanette Winterson explored the ungendered subject in Written on the Body, 1992, Sappho's meditative poem explored love from the perspective of a poet, a voice of indeterminate sex. Now, in ancient Greek, this is phenomenally difficult, just technically, because nouns, pronouns, adjectives, and participles all decline according to gender. Although Sappho is unusual since she's a female poet for ancient Greece, the homoeroticism of her works is, in historical context, unremarkable. It's elsewhere found in art and in women's songs relating to the cults of goddesses, especially those who oversaw the biological and sexual aspects of women's lives, Artemis and Aphrodite. For example, in the Spartan songs for choruses of unwedded maidens by Alcman, they flirt with each other as part of learning to get married to men. But homoeroticism is also a pronounced feature of symposium poetry written by men. And the age of the tyrants and lyrics was also the period when the fashion for symposia, in imitation of barbarian Eastern palace practice, swept across the Greek world. Now, women held such banquets at festivals from which men were excluded, and Sappho's songs were probably sung at them, but they were also very popular with male audiences. And the typical male symposium was a ritualised drinking party from which respectable women were excluded, although female musicians and sex workers often made appearances. By inviting guests to a symposium, a host or hostess could indicate that she or he shared with them a cultured, leisured and elegant lifestyle. The wealthy began to build special rooms in their own houses designed to hold up to 20 guests, paired, perfumed, garlanded with flowers, and facing each other on couches. They would discuss current affairs, gossip, sing, listen to the music of pipe and lyre, and tell each other stories. And there was a pronounced element of light-hearted and, inter, uh, and eroticized intergenerational mentoring. A supposed song by Alceus begins simply, Wine, my dear boy, and the truth. The collective excitement and physical intimacy were enhanced by the steady intake of wine. The younger guests were schooled in candour, humour, collective values, and the behaviour appropriate to a leisure class clique. And it's in this context that we need to understand the reason why many lyric poems are written in the voice of an older lover or admirer to a much younger person of the same sex. And there are hundreds of ancient Greek vase paintings depicting such drinking parties. And those paintings are on cups and jugs created for use at such parties. 
but the best visual representation, which took my breath away when I first saw it appropriately and enough on my honeymoon, <laughs> is the tomb of the diver at Posidonia or Pestum, Greek town in southern Italy. The guests are singing to a pipe, embracing their partner affectionately and playing Cotabos, a boisterous party game in which you compete in aiming the dregs of your wine at targets painted on the wall. In symposium poems, this flirtatious homoeroticism does, however, have a political aspect. Admiration for physical beauty and the adornment of the self with fine clothes and flowers are channeled into non-reproductive sexual relationships and private recreation because these are the privileges, the privileges of an elite, wealthy social echelon. Homoeroticism is for upper-class people. It's related to the cult of beauty and bodily excellence central to athletics competitions. Consumption of luxury goods in the private and selective environment of symposium suggests a shared refinement of taste and sensibility. The symposium offered rich families under the tyrants a way to affirm private relationships with other rich households that transcended the boundaries of their own city-states. So this offered an inter-island network of support and alliances in the face of internal struggles over power and resources that led to the rise of the tyrants. Sappho has had more words written about her in proportion to her own surviving output than any other writer in history, I believe. A couple of complete poems and about 200 fragments are all that remain of the nine substantial volumes that she produced. Her poems could still be consulted complete in the ancient libraries, including the famous one at Egyptian Alexandria. But they didn't survive the millennium between the triumph of Christianity and the frantic export to the west of Greek manuscripts from Constantinople before it fell in 1453. Some Renaissance scholars believed that in the 11th century, Pope Gregory VII had all the manuscripts of Sappho burned publicly as dangerously salacious. She did not fit Byzantine Christian values. Yet Sappho, for all the meagerness of her extant poetry, is a founder in many more respects than teaching us what love feels like. She's the first female poet and learned woman known to antiquity and to the Western literary tradition, the Dr. Puella. Said to have been entitled the Tenth Muse by Plato, she was the only woman that ancient scholars included in the canon of significant poets. And her life and loves have inspired many plays, operas and novels, other than Gounod's, as skillfully documented in Margaret Reynolds, the Sappho Companion, 2011. And until the 19th century, these biographical stories mostly just retold the fiction of the suicidal and heterosexual Fawon. And although this tradition reached its acme in Gounod's spectacular opera, it is still going strong, as in Erica de Jong's raunchy novel, novel sorry, Erica Jong's raunchy novel, Sappho's Leap, which now reads very datedly. Now, the change in attitude towards Sappho came when the self-conscious lesbian literary culture emerged in the mid-19th century, thanks to French decadence, and Baudelaire's famous poem, Lesbos, of 1857. Sappho was now crowned as the first explicit poet of female homoeroticism. 
Fantasy called Prussian scholars then tried to resist the growing popularity of erotic Sappho by insisting that her relationship with the young women whose leisure hours on soft couches she celebrated was actually that of the headmistress of a finishing school for debutantes entering the marriage market. But explicitly sexy verses by Sappho found soon after that on papyrus mentioning a dildo, frag 99, hindered the mission of these prudish academics. They could not explain away the dildo. Some more recent scholars have tried to tame Sappho by turning her into a priestess and claiming that erotic behaviours she describes were part of a formal ritual. Yet Sappho has inspired, of course, not only lesbians, but heterosexual poets and poets of male homosexual love, especially C.P. Cavafy. Like this gay Alexandrian proto-modernist, Sappho seems to sing to us, as E.M. Forster described Gavafi, from a position at a slight angle to the universe. Now, just listen to this poem, which says that her beloved Anactoria, I have a PhD student in this room whose name is Anactoria, Anactoria has left her to go and get married in Lydia, but she says Anactoria is more valuable to her than the splendour of any armed militia massed in cavalcade. Some say a host of cavalry, others of infantry, and others of ships is the most beautiful thing on the black earth. I say it's whatever a person loves. It's perfectly easy to make this understood. She who far surpassed humankind in beauty, Helen, left her noble husband and went sailing off to Troy with no thought at all for her child or her parents. Love led her astray. And Helen has reminded me of Anactoria, who is not here. I would rather see her lovely walk, the sparkle of her face, than the Lydians' chariots and all their armed infantry. We know of no personal love song like this in earlier world literature. Sappho has created attrition of love, not war lyrics, whose future stretches from Propertius to Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. As the definitive ur-voice of lyric ecstasy, she is so consequential that poets of every generation, from Catullus to Sylvia Plath and Anne Carson, have used her to define their aesthetic manifestos. And a good illustration of the difference between Sappho and Homer, his masculine world, comes in a more traditional poem about the wedding of Hector and Andromache. This couple are portrayed very tragically in the Iliad, where they part for the last time, now as parents, Andromache sings the lament over her warrior husband's cadaver. But they're celebrated in a sensuous poem by Sappho as a young bridal pair a messenger's bringing news. Hector and his companions are bringing the lively-eyed, graceful Andromache from holy Thebe and ever-flowing Plakia in their ships over the salt sea. And there are many golden bracelets and perfumed purple robes and ornate trinkets and countless silver drinking cups and ivory. The news went to his friends throughout the spacious city. At once the sons of Ilias yoked the mules to the smooth-running carriages. The whole crowd of women and tender-ankled maidens climbed on board. Apart from them drove the daughters of Priam. 
and unmarried men yoked horses to chariots, and they all together set out to Ilium. And the sweet-sounding pipes and kithera were mingled, and the sound of cusnets maidens sang clearly a holy song, and a marvellous echo filled the sky. Bowls and cups and myrrh and cassia and frankincense were mingled. The older women called out joyfully. All the men let forth a lovely high-pitched strain, calling on Pian Apollo, the archer skilled in the lyre, and they sang in praise of the godlike Hector and Andromache. Now, this lovely song was written for singing actually at a wedding, and Sappho's wedding songs were famous across the entire Greek world. So some love affairs featured a celebrated royal wedding, and Sappho's connected with another one about 300 years after she composed that poem. In about 300 BCE, a doctor was summoned to diagnose the illness afflicting Antiochus, crown prince of the Seleucid Empire in Syria. This poor young man's symptoms included a faltering voice, burning sensations, a racing pulse, fainting, and pallor. And in his biography of Antiochus' father, Seleucus I, Plutarch reports that the symptoms manifested themselves only when young Antiochus' young stepmother, Stratonike, came into the room. The doctor was therefore able to diagnose the youth's malady as an infatuation with his stepmom. The cause of the illness was clearly erotic because the symptoms were as described by Sappho. That is what Plutarch says. The solution was simple. Antiochus' father happily divorced Stratonike and let his son marry her instead. Would that all love triangles of an incestuous nature were so easily solved. Plutarch's story invites us to wonder, though, if the relationship between Sappho and erotic symptoms is straightforward. Did Antiochus and his doctor learn to describe those sensations from their knowledge of Sappho's already classic love poems? Did art shape life? Or are such sensations the universal experience of erotically fixated teenagers, which would mean that the lived experience had been recorded with uncanny realism in Sappho's art? Now, the complete poem that allowed the diagnosis of Antiochus's symptoms is the most influential lyric poem of all time. It's usually just known as Sappho Fragment 31, or Fainitaimoi, its first two words, which mean he seems to me. It describes a triangular scene. Sappho is transfixed by her own physiological responses to watching a woman she loves laughing with a man. And the brilliance of this poem, beside the luxuriant specifications of the symptoms, lies in the paradox that the speaker, who's the only silent member of this triangle, is putting her thoughts into words, and in doing so, nearly becomes silent in death. He seems as fortunate as the gods to me, the man who sits opposite you, and listens nearby to your sweet voice and lovely laughter. Truly, that sets my heart trembling in my breast. When I look at you for a moment, it's not possible any longer for me to speak. My tongue has snapped. At once a subtle fire has stolen under my flesh. I see nothing with my eyes. My ears hum. Sweat pours from me. A trembling sees me all over. I'm paler than grass. 
it seems to me that I'm just a little short of death. So here, form, rhythm, and oral impact, metaphor and image, are inseparable from the information transmitted. In this archetypal lyric, she's not only describing her inner lives, she's synthesizing sound, rhythm, diction, and mental pictures to maximize sensory and emotional impact. And it reminds me more than any other poem of Emily Dickinson when what she said to Thomas Wentworth Higginson in 1870. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know it's poetry. And I recommend to get that over the translations by either Josephine Barmer or Anne Carson. They're both brilliant. Phanatimoi was imitated by Catullus, the premier Roman love poet. But the Greek original has survived only because it survived in one manuscript, the one manuscript, of Longinus's On the Sublime, the treatise on literary transcendence attributed to a man called Longinus writing in Greek under the Roman Empire. We so nearly didn't get it. He offers an insightful piece of literary criticism. Sappho always chooses the emotions associated with love's madness from the attendant circumstances and the real situation. Where does she display her excellence? Asks Longinus. In that she's adept at selecting and excessive concomitance. On the Sublime was first printed in 1554. That's when the poem hit the consciousness of the West. It was translated into English first in 1652 by John Hall, a staunch Cromwellian from Consit. Here is the second half of Sappho's poem in Hall's version. I don't think he's a relation. I'm speechless, feverish, fires assail, my fainting flesh, my sight doth fail. Whilst to my restless mind my ears still hum new fears. Cold sweats and trembling so invade that like a withered flower I fade. So that my life being almost lost, I seem a ghost. Now, Hall's unpretentious rhyme diambics convey well enough the force, freshness, and candour of Sappho's original. But Hall is bound by the heterosexist conventions of his Puritan contemporaries. Um, and their picture of Sappho was derived mainly from Ovid's diva, infatuated with Phaon, rather than with the women she names in her poems, like Anactoria and Gongyla. Hall therefore transfers to the male admirer. He rewrites the poem to give the capacity to dart languors into Sappho's ravished heart. That now is the man she's in love with. Public access to this poem was widened by Nicolas Boileau and his French translation of Longinus in 1674, running through more than 20 editions by 1740 and published in English translation in 1711, Wallace Longinus put sublimity and this poem at the centre of the literary debate, laid the foundation stone of the invention of aesthetics as a discrete philosophical field by Kurt, Burke and Kant. But it also ensured that finer timoi would be encountered by every self-respecting writer. It's been translated or paraphrased in English alone by Addison, Smollett, Byron, Tennyson, William Carlos Williams and Robert Lowell. It's the foremother of every representation of pent-up sexual desire in our cultural repertoire. Yet even this poem is incomplete. 
The sad truth is until very, very recently, the only near-complete poem by Sappho we could read was number one, a dazzling hymn which summons Aphrodite to aid Sappho in her erotic pursuit of an unnamed young woman. Its seven perfect stanzas survived in entirety only because another astute ancient literary critic called Dionysius of Halicarnassus, Bodrum, specified Sappho as the best exponent in verse of what he called the polished and exuberant style. Dionysius explains the euphony and charm of this passage lie in the cohesion and smoothness of the joinery. But then he specifies the techniques by, techniques by which Sappho achieves her effects. Words are juxtaposed and interwoven according to certain natural affinities and groupings of letters. And here is a prose translation by David Campbell. Imagine that you are in the archaic temple of Aphrodite on Lesbos. Ornate, throned, immortal Aphrodite, while weaving daughter of Zeus, I entreat you. Don't overpower my heart, mistress, with ache and anguish, but come here. If ever in the past you've heard my voice from afar and acquiesced and came, leaving your father's golden house with your chariot yoked, beautiful swift sparrows whirring fast-beating wings brought you over the dark earth, down from heaven, through the mid-air, and soon they arrived. And you, blessed one, with a smile on your immortal face, asked what was the matter with me this time? Why was I calling on you this time? And what, in my maddened heart, I actually wanted to happen? Whom am I to persuade this time to lead you back to her love? Who wrongs you, Sappho? If she runs away, she'll pursue you soon. If she doesn't accept gifts, why, she'll give you, give you gifts instead. If she doesn't love you, soon she will love you, even against her will. Oh, come to me now again, deliver me from oppressive anxieties, says Sappho. Fulfill all my heart longs to fulfill. You, to the goddess, be myself, yourself my fellow fighter. And the second, the sound journey of the Greek poem Dionysius, quote, hurtles the listener through four breathless in jam stanzas where Sappho entreats Aphrodite. And Sappho, when she responds, is in much more me measured rhythmic clusters, giving shrewd advice in sentences end-stopped simultaneously with the stanzas. Very theatrical little dialogue. What Dionysius calls the groupings of letters are elaborate. Aphrodite favours alliterative P and D sounds synonymous with the sound of her name, while Sappho begins with dominant R sounds. There are five in the first line alone. Poikilotron, Artanat, Aprodita is the first line. While Sappho um, then requires the poet, this, this requires the poet to open her mouth wide to summon the divinity from afar. But by the end of the poem, the A assonance is replaced by S and E sounds, which suggest a much more sibilant determination to get the attention of Aphrodite. It's quite brilliant. And the other hymn, Summoning Aphrodite, is fragment two. And this gives an unparalleled description of this very temple on Lesbos. And it appeals to all five senses. It's very proto-romantic. Hither to me from Crete to this holy temple, 
Here is your delightful grove of apple trees, Walters smoking with incense. Cold water babbles through apple branches. The whole place is shadowed by roses. And from, in, from shimmering leaves, the sleep of enchantment comes down. There's a meadow where horses grow, graze, blossoms with fragrant spring flowers. The winds blow gently. There, Aphrodite, pour nectar gracefully into golden cups. Nectar that mingles with our festivities. This text, astonishingly, we've only got because it was inscribed on a clay pot by an Egyptian Greek in about 300 BCE. It was only published in 1937 by a fine Italian scholar, one of my heroines, who was appropriately enough a woman, a very beautiful woman, called Mandia Nossa. Now, whichever translation you use, I'm afraid that without Greek, you won't fully appreciate the one really crucial aspect of Sappho's foundational status as poet from a technical point of view, and that is that she invented the most exquisite and difficult of all verse forms, the suffix stanza. Suffix consists of three 11-syllable lines followed by a five-syllable line repeating, and that's in a circular movement where each line uses long, strong sounds at both ends, framing short, fast syllables in the middle, where I think there was probably some lyre twanging. Swinburne produced some memorable suffix, including these two stanzas, where you get the effect. And he recalls a vision on Lesbos. Saw the white, implacable Aphrodite saw the hair unbound and the feet unsandaled, shine as fire of sunset on western waters, saw the reluctant feet, the straining plumes of the doves that drew her, looking always, looking with necks reverted, back to Lesbos, back to the hills where under shone mighty Lini. But my favourite English language sapphic stanzas are by Allen Ginsberg. Uh, a particularly nostalgic poem in his late collection, White Shroud, 1986, which celebrates the gay trysts of his youth. In a moment of pure genius, he plays delicate homage to his literary foremother by combining sapphic form, sensuous diction, and pillow talk content. Red-cheeked boyfriends tenderly kissed me, sweet-mouthed, under bolder coverlets, winter springtime, hug me naked, laughing and telling girlfriends gossip till autumn. And exactly three years ago, the classics world was stunned by the publication of a completely newly identified five stanza, complete poem by Sappho in her delicious sapphic meter. Although not exactly new, because that's surely a misnomer for a poem composed 27 centuries ago, it had not been read or heard since about 300 CE. And in early February 2014, I was phoned up by the duty editor of BBC Two's newsite, Mark Williams, who claimed he'd been at Oxford uh, when I was a, a lecturer there and had heard me give a lecture. And he wanted me to record an interview on this new discovery. In the nearly complete new poem, it is practically complete, only a couple of missing words, Sappho explores her frustration, not her sexual frustration, but her brother's inadequacies 
The emotional tone is unexampled in the rest of her extant oeuvre, since the poem explores anxiety about mundane domestic obligations. Rather than sensual, it's practical and reflective. So it casts Sappho's in a completely new light, as a capable member of an eastern Greek island family with a freight business. One brother, Caraxos, has not returned from a voyage with his anticipated cargo. He's messing around with a woman in Egypt. Her younger brother, Larichos, is far too slow to grow up. He's a teenager and he won't assume responsibilities. Which leaves her running the business. Exasperated and slightly desperate, she rebukes an unnamed interlocutor who assails her with unsubstantiated rumours that the errant Caraxos's return with this cargo is imminent. Sappho retorts that her only option is to pray to Hera, the queen of the gods who oversaw women's social status. Now, this fine poem is evo uh, evokes a sustained psychological journey, and it's united by the image of the ship weighed down by freight and jeopardised by storms. The ship is both the vessel steered by her brother Caraxos and a metaphor for her family's financial problems. As a woman with an elder and a younger brother myself, I am very pleased that the new poem shows the poem most famous for her erotic adventures in a different way. And I'm actually going to play you the Newsnight interview because I'm very hoarse and I did manage to perform the poem in Greek. So I'm going, it did go out on BBC Two. For very, probably the only time that a big chunk of ancient Greek has ever been recited on BBC Two. But first I'm going to give you the English version, which I composed for that programme. I was rung up at like three in the afternoon saying, we haven't got a translation, can you come and read us a translation? So I was actually running a conference. I kept going out to the toilet at the London School of Economics to scan and translate this poem. Um, when I got to the studio, Kirsty Watt just said, well, we want it in, in Greek. But two minutes, two minutes notice. Terrifying. But before we play it, I'm going to give you this version that I composed to go out on the, the, the television, which never did. It hasn't been published except on my blog. This is Sappho's voice to an unnamed woman. Gossip. Why the incessant gossip about Caraxas' arrival in a loaded ship? Only Zeus, I think, knows the truth, along with all the other gods. It's not for you to have an opinion. Hardly. You should be telling me to go and make repeated appeals to Queen Hera, that Caraxas can make his return here, ship and all, finding us safe and sound. Let's place everything else in the lap of the gods. Sudden spells of fine weather do often emerge from heavy gales. Some people are lucky enough to have their problems averted by the King of Olympus. They're blessed and enormously fortunate. In our case, if Laricos can just grow up and come to be a man of leisure and status, then at least then, from our heavy cargo of sorrows, we may very soon be freed. This practical businesswoman and dutiful sibling is a far cry from the male fantasy of the disappointed lover of Phaon, leaping to a violent death in a frenzy of emotion. And here's the clip, I hope. Until now, it was thought that just four poems, along with some fragments of verse, had, had survived. But the discovery on a piece of papyrus of two new poems has transformed what we know about the most famous Greek female poet, 
who composed her verse in the 7th century BC. Edith Hall is Professor of Classics at King's College London. So what's your reaction to this find? Well, I'm very excited because Sappho is one of my favourite poets of all time. She allows us to get directly into the life of ancient Greek women in the middle of the 7th century BC. We've got some poems by her already. An awful lot of them are indeed about lesbian love. And we've got a poem that's not about lesbian love at all. It's about being a very responsible sister to two brothers. So there's two new poems. Yep. How much does that change a scholarship about her? How much does that you know, excite new study? Well, it's certainly going to excite a very great deal of new study because we've got several stanzas and so much of Sappho that we've got is just odd quotations or, or little scraps of papyrus. This really changes how we, we think about um, women as sisters on the island of Lesbos and in the Aegean Sea in this period before time. It also shows that an awful lot of the ancient sources that said she was always talking about her brothers, that a lot of people didn't believe she really was always talking about them. Because brothers. these brothers are actually named in yes. the poem. We know from other sources yes. that the names are correct. Yes. Yes, indeed. She's got an elder brother called um, Haraxos, who seems to be a bit of a bad lad, and he's gone off to sea and rather irresponsibly left her back at home um, in Lesbos, and, and he may or may not be off with, with a famous courtesan in Egypt. Um, and and she, she's worried about his return, isn't she? Well, she's cross because people keep promising he's going to come yeah. back, and what she actually says, she goes through five different emotions. She says, stop harassing me with gossip when you don't know. What you should be is telling me to go and talk to the queen of the goddess, the gods, Queen Hera, Eran, you'll hear that word, Eran, it's, it's Queen Hera. Um, and I think, she says, it's much better for us to be calm and let everything rest in the lap of the gods. And what I really worried about is my younger brother. I want him to be okay because then we'll actually all be safe and sound on Lesbos. You say that um, Sappho is really one, your favourite Greek poet, yeah. partly perhaps because she's a woman, of but course. actually in the canon of Greek. Mm poetry from that period. Is she really a great poet? Oh, absolutely. Sappho invents the love song. She invents the subjective eye voice where you say how you feel when you're in love. She is the first great lyric love poet um, in, 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 in Western mm -hmm. culture. Um, and the fact that it's 2,700 years ago, can you imagine being able to listen to the voice of a British woman from 700 BC. Yeah. So you, the, the, you, you, the, the, these, the, these were found in papyrus yeah. that's been kicking around in some private collection. <laughs> Is there more? Um, well, there's certainly more papyri of uh, ancient Greek poetry. There are um, boxes still sitting from, from various rubbish dumps in, in, in ancient Egypt. Um, but where are they? Well, some of them are in boxes in museums. Mm -hmm. Some of them are still wrapped around Egyptian mummies because mummies, Egyptian mummies were actually wrapped up in paper mm -hmm. and people have peeled off the cartonages, it's called the paper, and we find poems on those. Um, most of them, um, I'm sure there are still more to be uh, dug up in actual the sands of Egypt because but it's paper has survived. In collections, private collections, as these were in private collections. Well, I'm afraid there's a huge black market uh, to do with classical antiquities. Um, I'm not remotely alleging that this is one, but it's very, very clear that um, the, the editor of the papyrus isn't able to tell us where he got it from. And he's a very <laughs> distinguished academic indeed at Oxford University. And he just says, I'm grateful to the anonymous. Mm -hmm. 
owner of this in a London collection somewhere in London. So do you think this is going to lead to a kind of reappraisal of Sappho as a poet? Oh, it's certainly going to um, mean um, an enormous <laughs> amount of new business for Greek professors. But to me, it's just so exciting that when people think that classics is, you know, a dead subject or a closed off subject, that we actually get a whole new emotional uh, sequence from this, this wonderful woman. Edith, hang on just a minute, yes. because Very Edith is now going to read <laughs> us out with some of that newly discovered Sappho, obviously in the original Greek. Good night. So, the ancient Greek islanders of Lesbos put Sappho on their coins, and I'm delighted to say that the Bank of Greece has chosen to put her on its new 10 euro coin. Thank you very much.